Ken, as we look to the governance side of this equation, you and I both know that managing risk is a central concept for boards, whether it be patient risk, financial risk, legal risk, reputational risk, whatever. The law cares very deeply about this. How could the board's view of risk need to change in a disruptive environment? In other words, is there a risk that in responding to disruption itself and taking a short-term view of financial risk, it actually creates a greater long-term risk for the organization? How does the board manage risk in the concept of disruption? Well, major healthcare organizations have to be examining risk from a corporate perspective, which is not a, a trend that you see a lot in healthcare. You see it in banks, for instance, um, where where you begin to understand that managing and understanding risk is a multivariable equation. And, and, and so if, if you have all these risk factors that you just mentioned, so it's X plus Y plus Z, and maybe there's a multiplier in there somewhere, right, equals total amount of risk. And depending on what's changing in terms of your business conditions, your risk is changing. So, for instance, if you have a lot of variable rate debt and interest rates begin to go up, your risk changes. If you have uh, a tremendous amount of investment in your cardiac surgery program and the number of cardiac surgery admissions begin to decline, you've got an increase in risk. But all of these are interacting with themselves at the same time. So there's actually corporate risk approaches that you can use in order to measure and manage the risk in an organization. And of course, the primary users of this kind of concept are the big investment banks and the banks because of what happened in 2007 and 2008, when they discovered that some of their risk factors, which they didn't think were highly correlated, were highly correlated. Some of them actually went out of business and all of them were close to going out of business uh, and had to manage that. Healthcare organizations need to use the same kind of risk structure in order to figure this out, especially if you want to move strategically in a much more aggressive direction. The second thing is the quality of your financial planning has to be exceptional. It can't be just okay. Because what you're doing is maintaining a system-wide financial plan, and then your finance staff is adjusting that financial plan for all of the changes that occur. So if you're launching on a significant strategic development and you're, you've already, the board has already voted to put significant amount of money into that, and then all of a sudden Medicare reimbursement changes, then the staff has to be able to understand the impact of that on the financial integrity of the organization and report that to the board immediately so that changes and adjustments can be made. If you're not that facile, then obviously you can run the ship aground in a, in a heartbeat. Well, you just hit a, a word we want to focus on, facile. We both know the traditional approach to decision-making in healthcare organizations. It's long. It's focused on informed risk-taking. It's informed based on getting the input from everybody around the table. And that sometimes is less facile than it needs to be. Talk a little bit about the extent to which the board's decision-making process has to change in order to accommodate disruption. Because this is where the rubber will meet the road from the law's perspective. And this is where the attorney generals and the investors start to get concerned about wrong decisions and gambling with corporate assets. Well, in the tech internet economy, they have two observations. That is, in order to be successful and in order to hang in, 
you have to be curious and you have to be fearless. That's what they say. And I, I tell my hospitals clients this all the time and talk about it in my talks because hospitals, those are not two words that you normally would apply to hospitals over the years. Uh, most organizations are not very curious. What they are is they, they have a way of running that and they want it to stay that way and they're not fearless. Fearless as opposed to reckless. How would you divvy up the two? That's a very good question. One man's ceiling is another man's floor, so one man's reckless is another man's uh, fearless. But obviously you don't want to be reckless, but you do have to launch yourself out to different places and try different things. You have to have enough controlled experiments going on that you can change the organization. But uh, this comes back to where the financial planning is, is so you, you, you have these controlled experiments but you know as quickly as possible if some of those experiments are not going well, how it's impacting the financial integrity of the organization. Don't the policymakers, the people who regulate corporate governance, have to be more comfortable with controlled experiments as a necessity? Yeah, I think that's the case. I mean, I mean obviously, if regulation and policy ties a hospital's hand to its leg, then it isn't going to be able to compete effectively because the organizations that it's now competing are not, against are not regulated in the same way. And they have a different set of resources to allow them to be more flexible. Let's talk about this concept of the board size and the composition. There is in some states a principle called the bifurcated board where the law actually allows a two-tiered board. The people who are really into policy and governance are on that board. The people who are writing the checks are on the lower tier board. Do we need a kind of bifurcated model of governance to make this work or can we have a traditional governance model, all directors are made equal, and respond to business disruption? In my experience, I don't think the bifurcated board works very well. I think you, you run into a huge job description problem. Mm -hmm. I th I, I've seen this many times when neither board really absolutely understands what its job description is and both boards or both bifurcated boards start doing the same job, in which case there's an enormous amount of conflict and usually the CEO is caught in the middle of that. Do we need to be looking then to remake boards in terms of composition and expertise, or can we respond to business disruption with traditional scope of expertise that we see on a board? Yeah, so I've never been a big fan of the expertise board. I've been a big fan of the competence board. I think the best boards are when you have really competent individuals who work well together and work well with management and, and they do have this curiosity and, and they do know when to take risk and when not to take risk and they participate very deeply with the organization. You know, occasionally it's really helpful to have a board member who has a particular level of expertise, but in, in the early days of my career, I watched as some boards, they had an accountant and, and they had a marketing person and they had a medical person and they had a quality person. And what happened? Happen, is those people knew that they had been put on the board just for their expertise. And instead of being board members, they just spoke when those subjects came up. And I didn't, I never thought those were high functioning boards. Well, you just raised a question that concerns some of our clients. And that is, doesn't business disruption and the challenges that it imposes on an organization drive the typical director to be excessively deferential to management? Hey, this isn't my business. I don't have special expertise. 
I'm going to defer to the experts, which is the management team. And there it becomes a less informed decision-making process. Are we defaulting to that? Well, we're seeing that in many organizations. There's absolutely no doubt we are. But, you know, if you have 10 competent board members and they're very confident in their skills and abilities to understand situations and understand issues, then they function at a high level when confronted with these kinds of problems. How do we address the temptation to defer to management for the board to put their hands up and say, this is interesting, this is fascinating, Ken, it's not our game. We really need to restructure our board processes, restructure our approval processes to make management more autonomous. Is that a workable solution? The board job description and the CEO job description have to be very well thought out and articulated in every major healthcare organization in the country. The CEO has to be extremely comfortable with what he or she is allowed to do, what they do on a day-to-day basis, how they drive the organization, how they run the organization. And the board has to be very comfortable uh, with its job description and that it's very well connected what's happening to management. We don't want to get to the point where, where boards are actually running these places because that can't happen. You have a $10 billion organization. It can't be run by the board. It'll be a train wreck. Uh, But on the other hand, the board has a very specific fiduciary responsibility for the long-term success of the organization. And that's for the success of the CEO who may have been there 10 years and may be there another five years but won't be there 20 or 25 or 30 years from now. It's the board who's supposed to be protecting the organization from 30 years from now because that's, that's the, the ultimate that, sustainability. That, that, that's, that's the, that's the sustain, that you, you just don't get that many CEOs who look at the world like that because they're under so much pressure in terms of what they're doing right now to take care of the short-term success of and the that, organization. That pressure exists in both the for-profit and the not-for-profit. Everywhere. Well, then isn't it a question of how do we find the right kind of board members? That's exactly right. Engagement, things of that nature. What's the profile that you're looking for here? Again, I, I would come back to repeat that I believe strongly in the competence board. I believe strongly in board members who have been successful in in other endeavors of their life. It doesn't necessarily have to be business. So you're going to have a certain number of business people for sure because they tend to rise to the top often. But people who are confident in what they're doing, who know how to work in a team, who know how to be, you know, if you when you see a high-functioning board, it, it, it's people who generally like each other and respect each other. Uh, they come together. They have successful meetings. They know how to have a meeting. They know how to bring up a controversial topic and talk about that topic. And they know how to get to decisions. They know that, you know, that, that the death, especially in the not-for-profit organization, is constantly putting things things off or making a decision and then deciding six months from now that they didn't really like that decision and bringing it back up again. For those kinds of organizations, they never feel like they have any momentum. They never feel like they have any drive. They never feel like they're moving to a more successful point in their organizational life. How does that play out in the context of engagement? And by that, I mean number of board meetings, and we all know CEOs and chairs want to go to fewer board meetings in a year to the level of engagement, uh, how much time I have to spend. Well, well I'm finding that, that most of our our client boards are meeting four times a year now. That seems to be— Is uh, that enough in this No, no, it's not enough. But, 
a CEO can manage that board to more meetings or more phone calls as necessary. And so that argues for, you know, a size board that that you can get together. You don't you don't want to get in a situation where you have very tough decisions to make. You need a, a couple of conference calls to do that. You can't do it in one conference call, but that you can never really get a quorum of the board because you've got such a large board you can't get them on the phone. What so, does it say to you in terms of I'm on five different boards and the healthcare system is one of them. Do we need to ask directors to give up some of their other board service in order to devote their time? Are we looking at essentially exclusive director relationships to respond? I don't think it has to be exclusive, but I think when you recruit somebody, you have to tell them this is a real job. And you have to be really honest about how much time it requires. And you have to get the kind of people on there that, who can give you that time. I've worked with boards where two-thirds of the board is, is in Florida in the wintertime. Is and that model? I mean, can, no, 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 that model can't work anymore. It, that, 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 that model can't work anymore. How much can technology overcome some of the? Uh, it can overcome it to a certain extent, but sometimes there's issues that that require a level of interaction and a level of conversation that, you know, that it's just better if everybody's in the same room. But you've got everybody's attention in a in a completely different way. I I, th I think that's a critical part of the recruitment process. A tougher question, Ken, as we kind of wrap things up, are boards going to have to look to more immediate turnover and restructuring of their composition to get to where they need to be? In other words, does, do the challenges to disruption require a more aggressive restructuring of the membership of the board, or can that wait? Well, I think in some cases that's the case. In other cases, it, it's not. You know, that's a real tough one. You, you know, any CEO will tell you that people don't generally volunteer to go off the board. So, you know, I think it's going to be more of an evolutionary process than it is a revolutionary process. I would just say w one thing. You know, when I when I first went to graduate school many, many, many years ago in healthcare administration, there was a mantra that, that was talked about. And over the years, I've learned that that, that mantra is incredibly true, and that is every CEO gets the board they deserve. And as I've gotten deeper and deeper into my career, I realize how, how true that is. The CEOs who really see as one of their major portions of their job description, the development and creation of an exceptional board, and they think about that, and they work with that, and they, they always have three or four board members that they're constantly working with about how can this board be better, what can we do, how much education do we need, how do we get maximum engagement, they get the best boards. And I want to wrap up our podcast series with something that you said in an earlier presentation to the effect that there has never been a time in your experience, that the board can make a greater difference than now. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. Ken Kaufman, thanks so very much. Thank you, Michael. The views, opinions, and positions expressed in this podcast are those of Michael Peregrine and Ken Kaufman and do not necessarily represent or reflect the views of McDermott, Will & Emery. These podcasts have been prepared by McDermott, Will & Emery for informational purposes only and do not constitute legal advice.